Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas, which in this episode will catch up with the world of sport. I'm Alistair Donald, Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas and a co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival. Before introducing my guests, a quick appeal. Unlike most of the sporting world, which has ground to a halt over the past three months, we at the Academy of Ideas have been as busy as ever, organising or coordinating a huge array of events online, including Zoom debates, specialist forums, salon events, book clubs and virtual gallery tours. In order to keep going through this period, we have declined to furlough any of our staff, with very obvious financial implications for a small organisation such as ours. So if you are still working and you can afford to make a contribution, either large or small, to help keep alive public debate on the big issues of our times, then please do support us by making a donation. You can do that by visiting academyofideas.org.uk and hitting the donate button. Thanks. And now on with the podcast. For what has seemed like an eternity, the lockdown has starved us of sport. Interrupting the sporting calendar, just as leagues or championships gathered pace as they moved towards their conclusion, and causing many of the up-and-coming tournaments and sporting spectacles, such as the Olympics, to be postponed. With even a kickabout in the park frowned upon, many of us have been reduced to reaching for the remote control and seeking out one of the many reruns on offer, whether Wimbledon rewinds or World Cup wonders. However, in the past couple of weeks, sport has made something of a return. Once again, the back pages and various sports channels are sparking into life, but also, notably, sport is on the front pages too, with football, rugby, tennis and cricket all at times becoming caught up in, and even becoming something of a focal point for, discussions around the big issues of the day, whether that be the pandemic or Black Lives Matter protests. So this seems a good moment to take stock of what's going on. To do that, I'm joined by Jeff Kidder and Rob Lyons from the office team at Academy of Ideas, and also by Hilary Salt, the founder of First Actuarial and a season ticket holder at Old Trafford, and Dulip Alaraja, football writer, long-term contributor to the online magazine Spite, and a season ticket holder at Crystal Palace. Hello and welcome to you all. So we've lots to discuss, uh, but I wanted to kick off with the story that's dominated for the past few days, which is that after a 30-year break, Liverpool Football Club are once again champions of England. Uh, We can get some reaction from the non-Liverpool fans in a minute, but maybe we should go with the gloating first. So let me come to Rob, who I suspect has had a fairly enjoyable few days. Uh, Rob, your reaction? Well, obviously, I'm very delighted. Uh, and it's all been even 22 points clear or whatever it was. Still get nervous about it. So it's good to get it over the line. And I mean, they have been exceptional this year. It will be very interesting to see if they manage to break the Man City record for most points in a season. And their form has just been incredible. I was reading something that pointing out that they won 17 games on a trot. And I think it was the draw against Old Trafford that broke it up before another 18 games won on the trot. So 35 out of 36 or something they've, they'd won before the Watford game at the start of March. So that's a pretty astonishing total. So I think they thoroughly deserve the title. Uh, and Klopp has been a, a real breath of fresh air at, at, at Liverpool. The, but in terms of 
this podcast, I suppose, it really exemplified all the problems that we've got at the moment. So I'm standing in the kitchen making a cup of tea, listening to the last few moments of the Chelsea Man City game when the title was clinched and the game ends and I let out a cheer and the only person around is my wife and two dogs. And she says, oh, have your team won? And it's like the, the enormity of the moment, completely lost. You know, if everyone missed being in the pub with your mates to watch something, it's something like that. So it just, it, the, the, there's just no, I can w- well understand why a few hundred or a couple of thousands of people went to Anfield just to have some social moment about it because it's such an enormous thing and we haven't been able to celebrate it. We have not even in the pub, never mind in the ground. So, yes, it's kind of, dropped in a way a bit like a sort of dead cat um, rather than being the enormous moment of joy and relief and celebration that it should have been. Hilary, let me come to you next because uh, you're the season ticket holder at Old Trafford. Have you left the country yet? My way to Papua New Guinea uh, to join Gary Neville. Um, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about not being in the office uh, has been I've not had to face the Scousers, uh, clearly, so that's been one of the upsides of our uh, current working from home situation. I mean, I agree with Rob. They've been pretty good, haven't they? They've been, it's hard to kind of knock uh, how how good they've been, and it's hard not to like Klopp. It was good that Watford taught them a lesson. That was uh, quite nice. That would be a good reason for uh, putting uh, Watford to stay up. Uh, obviously, they've got a bit of a battle uh, to fight yet. It's uh, the interesting thing, I think, as, as speaking as a United fan, is is all the stuff, um, all the memes, etc., about uh, Liverpool being back on their perch which kind of shows you it's just as much about United as it is about Liverpool, um, of course, uh, as everything is. But being magnanimous, uh, Rob and uh, Alistair, congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Julep, as a writer, you've never been too slow to get some digs in at the Scousers, so it must have been, I suppose, a bit galling for you that your team was rolled over so easily in the the game before actually they were crowned champions. What's your response to to this? Yeah, I mean, I think my team was on... Probably having just got to 42 points, we were at Crystal Palace, we're on the socially distanced beach. Um, Tony Cascarino in the Times said that the Palace players were smiling too much. And I think there, there probably had just been a slight drop in intensity. Um, but yeah, Liverpool deserve it. As a, wearing my football writer hat on, they were the best team. But I don't think they were at their best this season. I think they were much more exciting attacking team last season what they've done this season is that they have they're just very hard to beat and they grind results out and they do what champions do which is that they win even when they're not playing at their best so for a team that's not been at their best throughout the whole season to have won by that sort of margin is pretty phenomenal I, I think it's partly because City have underperformed and they've had defensive problems but it's still a, it's still a it's just underlined Liverpool's dominance that no one's come anywhere close to them and they haven't they haven't hit some of the sort of sparkling hypes that they did last season when I thought they were really exciting to watch. Um, and I don't often say that. I think um, as a fan, uh, it's obviously devastating. You know, we, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s having to deal with plastic Liverpool fans in London crowing and gloating and you know uh, it's just unbearable the kind of mythologizing and and they and in the 30 years when they were unsuccessful 
they never stopped that. They never stopped reminding us that they were the biggest team in the world, even though they hadn't won the Premier League. So now they've won it, that's going to get worse. You know, we'll, we will never hear the end of it. And yeah, it's, it's sickening. It's, you know, it's, it's devastating. We're going to have to deal with it. You know, this could, we could be in for another decade of this potentially. So, you know, I think the only con- small consolation is they didn't win it in front of the cop. There is no cop. There's, there is a cop crowd noise, uh, which is quite amusing. And, you know, they weren't able to do the open top bus parade through Liverpool. That's, that's something of consolation that they can't actually celebrate. I mean, I, I quite like the fact that people turned up at Anfield and defied social distancing uh, rules and, you know, let off pyros and so on. Good, well done to them. But um, it is there is something, the only bit of schadenfreude I can salvage from this whole sorry episode <laughs> is that there hasn't been a crowd uh, to celebrate. I, I suppose I have had a, quite a number of conversations over the past few days where discussion has inevitably focused on where's Klopp in the line of managers from Shankly through Paisley and so on and so forth, and where's this team compared to the teams of the 70s or the, or the 80s. So Jeff, as, as, a, as a man that's also uh, been around long enough to remember some of those teams in the 70s and the 80s, kind of where do you place this? They have to keep it going. They've won one Premier League title and they have to see if they can win it again next year or maybe the year after or whatever. I mean, Manchester United are the only team that have done that in the Premier League uh, era. Liverpool did it, as Dulip said, in the 70s and 80s. And to keep it going, I mean, Arsenal thought they were going to do it 15 years ago and didn't. And it's a big thing to be able to, it's a different thing and a big thing to be able to keep that going. I mean, maybe they will and it'll be a great achievement and they'll build a new dynasty or maybe they won't. But I think to do that, they have to win uh, more titles. Um, yes, Klopp's obviously a good manager. I don't know how good. And I think, you know, time will tell because it is a big achievement. But we'll see. One final point. Somebody mentioned Watford. Um, Watford have got this new problem, which is having to suspend or uh, not play players who've broken the lockdown rules. I think three players were ruled out yesterday because... They went to a birthday party or something like that. This is going to be a new disciplinary problem for teams that's going to join all the other problems of our, you know, of our contemporary moment when they're trying to get out of relegation. And that certainly hasn't helped them. Yeah, on the points about the crowds, I very much agree with that, actually. I think it would have been disappointing if some people uh, hadn't turned up. I mean, after all, we've had all the, I don't know, Black Lives Matters protests and block parties and so was there a problem with with crowds coming out that night i mean i know a firework got fired into the liver building or whatever but um on the rest of it people seem to be more concerned with rubbish i i really don't see that there was a problem for for a few hours people being out on the streets and and celebrating something so momentous and you know outside i mean this really doesn't seem to be a a, a huge problem in terms of uh the virus. I know there was a lot of people who said that the the, the Champions League game against Atletico Madrid seeded the virus into Liverpool, and, and there was uh, there was deaths as a result or whatever. I think it's pretty minor stuff, really, in the in the grand scheme of the sort of many many thousands of of cases and many many thousands of deaths that we've had since since then. This disease at the moment seems to be at a very low level and and i I think that that people took that into account very sensibly when they took a 
an educated gamble to go out and celebrate something really, really important to them. Um, and as you say, there's been a lot of fuss about this, this not just about, about Liverpool, but about Bournemouth Beach and all that. And I think it's, it's very much overhyped and, as you said, more issues with the, with the litter than anything else. And I think the, the crowds going to the ground that night and also to the beaches and the, the parks or whatever has to some extent highlighted how lacking football is just now with the fake fan noise in the back and uh, Zoom fan zones or whatever. I mean, where, where do you all stand on this in terms of football coming back? Because there seems to be two schools of thought. On the one hand, people are quite positive. I'd say the majority of people are quite positive about it as a step in the right direction. Some worry that it's going to set in stone a whole series of things that perhaps continue with some of the more sanitization measures that have, have uh, come around in football over the past decade and more. So is it a good thing on balance or, or is there a risk in this that some we end up with lots of things that we don't particularly like? I think it's, it's the right direction in terms of, you know, giving us all something to, to do whilst we're, we're, we're stuck at home. Um, but you're right that certainly at all of the early matches, they were kind of they felt like pre-season friendlies, didn't they? Nobody really kind of had the um, the oomph or the passion that you're you're used to seeing at, at football. But it, it's not it's it's not the kind of football that is the the kind of centre of, of many of our lives because you know football isn't just the match. Football is going to the pub beforehand. It's meeting your mates. It's four generations of people getting together beforehand. It's uh, having a bit of bants. It's you know it's all the stuff that's associated with socialising with people uh, at the match. It's not just the match. Um, and, and you can't recreate that. I know people are trying with things like, you know, having a Zoom meeting running while, while the game's on. Uh, I, I've not had very much uh, success with that kind of stuff. Um, I've been uh, flicking between listening with the fake sound and listening without the fake sound. Um, um, clearly, without the fake sound, the quite nice thing is that you um, expand your repertoire of foreign swear words, um, which is uh, a, a bit of a bit more education uh, in our lockdown period. Um, but it's quite good listening to to who's who's doing all the talking. You know, you, you can get a bit, bit of a better idea of who are the people who are trying to you know direct their uh, team and take a bit more responsibility so I quite like the listening uh without the sound uh but clearly you know it, it is it is it's not the same it's not it's not football as we as we know and love it you, you were quite positive about the the fans turning up in the center of Liverpool and outside the ground and I, I wonder do you think um the criticisms are, are indicative of the fact that as a as a nation we're being a bit too cautious in terms of returning crowds to football because uh, if you go to places like um, Belgrade, for example, where Partizan played Red Star a couple of weeks ago and there's 25,000 fans in the ground or there's, there's other countries where they've started to return uh, fans to the ground. So do we just need to get on with it or, or kind of is, this, is it better to be a little bit more cautious? I mean, I, I think that you, you realise when you're watching crowd-free football that you're, you're taking away something so important to the spectacle, it really damages it. I was actually quite glad to see VAR decisions again, even though I hate VAR, <laughs> because it introduces a bit of drama and not having a crowd kills the drama. I mean, 
that's fine if you're an Arsenal fan. It's probably not much more much different to listening to, you know, the, the hush at the Emirates. Um, but for some of us, you know, the, the football is about the, the the crowd. It's you know, and it and it matters to the players, and it ma- and it affects the intensity of the games and so on. So yeah, you can get into you can get into the games, particularly if it's your own team that's playing. I find it quite hard to watch some of the games where I'm. You know, I don't have a stake in it, really. I, I, I think like Hillary, you kind of then find an esoteric reason to watch, which is what are they shouting and what, how's the, the coach, you know, what, how are the instructions being relayed, which isn't, you know, that's not really, that's not going to sustain you through a whole season. That's just an interesting thing, I think. Um, you know, I watched some of the German games, couldn't really get into them. I don't, you know, I don't have a particular... Um, emotional investment in any German team so it didn't really matter to me um, I think I was glad to see the Premier League come back but without the crowds I think it's it's missing something so I would be in favour of bringing crowds back as soon as possible I think we've got a real problem which is that um, football crowds are always hard to control and you know I wrote a lot about um, how fan conduct had been policed and incrementally but ultimately it still was a crowd and it was still very difficult to police now we've got in uh, the whole kind of pandemic response a regulating principle that a lot that, that is much more effective than any amount of policing and stewarding it's hard to see a way out of that in the current situation unless the unless covid completely dis- disappears and we've got a vaccine i think we could have this problem for some months if we're going to insist on social distancing how do you get to the ground how do you have a drink in, in a pub before the match, you know, you can have people spaced out, you know, maybe a, half the number of fans in, in the crowd. I, I, I think this is going to be a big problem. And I think they need to find a solution because I just don't think, you know, I think we can accept you need to finish the season off in some way with this biosecure football. But I think next season it's, it's essential, the fans back. And I think it will kill football if it doesn't do that. Jeff, where do you stand on this? Well, I very much agree with what Doolibs just said. I mean, the positive thing, as Ulips just said, is that they didn't void the league as they did in some places. They've carried on. They've ended it properly. That's that's fine. And this season has no fans. But I think going forward, there has to be, before they start the season, there has to be a plan to say, and obviously things might happen and they have to alter it, but they have to have a plan that either they start with fans or they have a plan to get fans back by a a certain time, you know, just a, a stage that that you can do, that you can do that and start returning to normal. Otherwise, it could drift on for months, if not it, it, you know if not longer. I was just reading in the news that they're starting allowing uh, weddings to happen with thirty people, but no singing is allowed. I mean, and if you've got that, that's the law in relation to weddings. As has just been said, football grounds obviously they're far more spontaneous, unregulated. The idea of telling people you can go, but you can't sing and shout because there's this percent chance of you doing this that and the other it's ridiculous so there has to be a point where uh, you you have to be able to manage the risk and have a you know and say to people there's a risk of doing this or we have so many fans and there's so much gap between them and all the rest of it but, but there has to be a proper plan to get back to what used to be the old normal rather than the, the new normal i think before the new season 
uh, the, the new season starts. Okay, so moving on, uh, obviously the crowd situation has meant that football's been on the front pages as well as the back pages. And the other thing that football's been uh, notable for its presence on the front pages is is the Black Lives Matters protest and the way that uh, some of this stuff has been become a bit of a focal point within football and and, and without, within other sports. And I just wondered how everybody responds to this. Some people have welcomed it. Obviously, sport where young working class black men have the capacity to make an impact and see it as an opportunity to send a wider message to society. Others have, have expressed some concerns. So where, where, where do you all stand on this? Could have um, um, had patience with taking the knee if they'd done it once on the first match. It's, it's starting to get, I think, very very wearing now i've got the house martins get up off our knees going through my head uh, on repeat continuously but it's hard to see how they back away from it now they've kind of got themselves into such a situation now that i, I just think it's hard for them to say right that's it we're stopping so i i, I just can't see it where they're going to go with it really when colin kaepernick did it in the states it was a it was a protest it was an act of protest and gridiron established and didn't like it you know when Tommy Smith and John Carlos did the Black Power salute in 1968 on the the podium at the 100 meters in the Olympics it was a protest and it was it was the front to the establishment um there's there's that this is this is absolutely not the same at all you know it's um it's it's become like a devotional right you know it's it's something it's a bit like observing the national anthem where you're required. I mean, I understand that black players and, and white players would want to show some solidarity uh, with George Floyd. I think the, uh, the sentiment, you know, you can understand why they, they, they feel strongly about racism. However, as a gesture, when everybody's doing it, including the referee, which don't you think it looks weird when the referee is taking the knee and if everyone's doing it then it's no longer an act of protest so what is it is it just saying i'm a good person is it a kind of collective form of virtue signaling because and i think this is the other thing about the whole black lives matter movement which is that what's the political ask what's the program what are they trying to achieve you i mean there's something strange about seeing it in a football context where football is probably the most colorblind sector in in the economy you know where black players are overrepresented where the, the black players who are kneeling and giving the black power salute are millionaires and, and um yeah you can pick holes in football and say look at the you know the, the coaches or the, the boardrooms and so on and there isn't the same level of representation but it's not a sport where it's not a white supremacist sport it's a sport where black people are the heroes and are the millionaires and i mean that seems a bit odd what what are they kicking against what are they fighting against you know there's to me there isn't within football itself a particular grievance there or a or an ask so so it does feel like it's a it's a form of virtue signaling saying i'm good i you know, the good, what the good people do is that they side with Black Lives Matter. And that's all. It's just a kind of, you know, it, it's, a, it's a devotional gesture to the new, new religion of kind of, of Black Lives Matters and not, and not a protest anymore. Yeah, so, so I just also think what, what the situation for anybody who has a, a problem with it, I mean, it's just 
where you would just completely screw up the, the, the team spirit or whatever if you said, you know, actually, I don't want to take the knee. I mean, I think it's just the, the, completely the wrong thing to do. Don't feel comfortable about the whole thing. And I, I, as people have said, you know, it just becomes this uh, virtue signaling. You don't know when to stop. Um, it's a bit like the clap for carers in that respect. It had to be somebody to come along and say, look, 10 weeks, that's plenty. I don't know who's going to say that in football unless it just goes on to the end of the season or something. But it, the, I think that there'd be such pressure on, a, on any player to, who even had any sort of qualms about it. Um, and, I don't think, and I think that that's a very unhealthy thing that where we can't have a discussion about that or nobody could feel like they can't go along with the ritual because... They'll be they'll they'll stand out or whatever, or they'll get lambasted on social media as somehow you know, not playing along. So uh, it's it's that atmosphere as well that that really worries me as well. I mean, obviously it's football at the end of the day. I mean, in terms of what goes on in the pitch, we know it's heavily regulated, but that that idea around football itself that this is un, indubitably a good thing is it makes me uncomfortable. I just wonder when you had the the guy, the kind of idiot last week with the banner flying over the Etihad. I just keep thinking, you know, if the ground was full and we're in a normal situation, probably most people would take not a blind bit of notice of it. You just think maybe they would, but you just think it would have a whole different context. But because everyone's at home, not, you know, either watching the match or uh, underemployed in one way or another, it becomes like this major thing in society that some uh, guy's flying a silly banner and then everyone's talked about it, and then he becomes a hate figure. He gets sacked for some uh, uh, private, for this kind of gesture that he's made, um, and it becomes the talking point of the nation. You think, well, this is, uh, it's only can have this effect because we're living in such a peculiar, uh, a peculiar situation. And it also has the effect, Rob says, that people who don't agree, you know, not necessarily agree with him, but people who don't go along with the, taking the knee or whatever, then feel that there's no space, there's no avenue to air your view because you because uh, they don't go along with, with with what the majority view is. I mean, the FA just, I think the FA just brought in a, a, a scheme today to encourage black and minority coaches and encourage. And, and, you know, where there's a situation there where people are underrepresented and if that scheme does some good, well, that's, that, that's great, but it's Dulip's of all the areas of, in, in, in Britain, it, it, it doesn't quite seem the, what, what, what's necessary. So also, I would say that, you know, there, there are things to get angry about, you know. The police killing Dalian Atkinson, the former Villa striker, or Smiley Culture, or, you know, the, the Windrush scandal. Those, where were all the demonstrations then? You know, that, that would have been the time to take the knee or do a black power salute or make some sort of, Process gesture, but this isn't isn't like that. You know, those those things get passed with very little public outrage, and 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 those are the things that people should get angry about because they're you know it, it may be that racism isn't the same issue that it was in, as 20, 30 years ago, but the people still do get killed by the police. You know, black people still get disproportionately locked up. So you know, get angry about the right things. You know, and not fight imaginary racism. And, and this is, I think, what's wrong with a lot of anti-racism today is that the assumption is that racism is kind of all pervasive. We're all a bit racist. It's a bit like original sin. 
And so, in a way, my question, where's the political ask, the answer to which is there isn't one. You just have to absolve yourself by genuflecting and, and kneeling. And, um, and, it, and it's been transformed from, it doesn't feel like protest to me anymore. It feels like, um, actually, it feels like compliance. The one uh, area that that does seem to have been a little bit of kickback is on, on the question of rugby union, where Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, the, the anthem, has been uh, called into question. The rugby authorities have announced that they're going to have an inquiry into it. I wondered, uh, well, first of all, if you think that's true, but secondly, why is, is there a bit of unease there and why has why it come out uh, around this? I, I would have said that the, the idea particularly when you see the guy who runs a rugby football union claiming himself as an authority on anti-racism, which he suddenly discovered like the day before, and then telling people, we're going to make a decision on what is the history of this song and whether you're entitled to sing it and what your motivation is or what your secret motivation is and all the rest of it is utterly ridiculous. I mean, in any other time, apart from the last two weeks, it would be it would be seen as being utterly ridiculous, and people who, who people who sing it have perfectly laudable motives. And even going back to the history of the song, they're saying it was written by a freed slave. I don't know the uh, uh, genesis of the song, but they're saying it was written by a freed slave. It's about freedom from slavery. It's not about slavery, but for some reason, it's got wrapped up in these uh, in, in in these concerns. So for the uh, the, the response of the rugby union, rugby football union, seemed particularly high-handed, and particularly that they were going to do a thorough investigation into it, uh, and completely disregarding the views of all kinds of people who were just saying what you're saying is, uh, is, isn't true. So I'm not surprised there's been a reaction to it. Interesting though, because because the authorities' attitude to uh, rugby union fans has traditionally been very different to their attitude to to football fans, hasn't it? And you, you kind of think, you know, if, if football fans are singing the wrong song, you can absolutely imagine the police wading in and dragging them out. I can't imagine that at Rugby Union uh, myself. I just can't see that that would be uh, treated in the same way. But, you know, at, at, in terms of what uh, Jeff was saying, it just seems mad to try to control this for, for reasons that just seem entirely um, arbitrary. It was, so it was written by a free slave. Does anything where the, the word slave can be used just seems to be now... Uh, being being questioned. Uh, I mean, interestingly, that, that song is not just used by rugby uh, union fans. It's also stalwart of the junior choir, um, you know, which is where you learn about kookaburras and Timbuktu and Le Pont d'Avignon, all kinds of strange things uh, uh, raise their heads there. I, I just don't know the choirs are now going to be stuck with Anil Klimor Bartat and kind of green grow the rushes out uh, if they're not allowed to sing any of these other songs anymore. I, I am interested in how this, um, how this came about because it doesn't sound like there's been any demand for it. I mean, you know, this song's been sung for quite a long time. I was watching the Euro 96 um, kind of replays and England fans were singing it at Wembley um, and there was no kind of breast-beating, self-loathing, why are, why are white people singing Negro spiritual uh, at the time? As far as I can remember, I was a bit concerned that football fans were singing rugby songs, but yeah. um, no, don't remember anyone taking offence. Has anyone ever taken offence to it? I mean, 
it doesn't sound like it comes from anywhere other than self-loathing uh, on the part of the, the the kind of administrators of the game, and that that to me is is what's is is what's wrong with this sort of thing, which is it's a kind of it, it's it's partly we've got to do something. There's got to be something that we are in some way guilty and complicit. Um, you know, even though we had nothing to do with slavery, so we'll find we'll sign, we'll find some language or symbols or statue to purge, to remove, to cancel. Um, and I think that that kind of sort of instinct to purge your culture and your history and your language and and your songs of anything that might be that might have some sort of racial connotations. It's just that it it it. A, it's the wrong. It's not a, you know. It's the wrong problem. It's not inequality. It's the, it's the symbols and the ghosts of the past that you're you're dealing with. But it it just feels like a kind of dynamic which can only end badly because there's very little that it w- will leave untouched, and it, you know you you will end up damaging your own culture, which is which is which is the logic of the debate around cultural appropriation and so on. It, you will end. It, it's very very hard to see that's why you get all these old comedy programs being taken off there you know it, it everything will get everything everyone will be guilty and there'll be very little that isn't isn't taken off or censored or, or purged. yeah i think i think uh that's exactly right i think it's 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 not just pushing at an open door because it, 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 hardly anybody if anybody complained about this song it is about the self-loathing and looking around for something to symbolise that you've done something. And the song itself, I mean, songs get attached to sports for or to particular teams for all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons. Um, so why Liverpool Football Club should be associated with a song from Carousel the Musical is, you know, all right, it was a, it was a hit for Jerry and the Pacemakers, but really, I mean, there's no particular reason why You'll Never Walk Alone has got anything to do with Liverpool. Um, or why you know, Celtic fans, I know there's a, it's obviously an Irish connection, but Fields of Athen Ryan, all this sort of stuff. Every, everybody's got you know, these weird and wonderful songs that have become attached to a team for no particular reason. And the logic of it, uh, as we've seen in Scotland, is you end up with the criminalisation of singing songs, which thankfully is no longer on the statute books, but the idea that simply singing, um, it, well, even like... Republican songs or um, loyalist songs should in and of itself be something that's worthy of being banned. Never mind a nice tune that happens to be about slavery that somehow has become attached to English rugby. Who knows? But I, th- I just think that, that it's just such a uh, depressing idea that you, um, as, as Hillary said, you know, that you end up just singing your own songs or songs that are entirely appropriate to you um, rather than this... The, the slightly spontaneous and weird way in which songs become attached to a particular occasion or a club or a sport, which I think is, uh, which is great. And, and one of the great things about the atmosphere of these big, big occasions. And I'm sure if I was ever remotely interested in going to Twickenham and listening to 70,000 people singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot, I think the hairs would stand on the back of my neck and it would be great. So let's have more of that. 
Yeah, I think the the thing that struck me about it was uh, that it was rugby, actually. And so, so most football fans will know. I mean, Hillary will know that there's pressure on United fans not to sing songs about Hillsborough. And Liverpool fans all know that there's pressure on us not to sing uh, songs about Munich. In, in all sorts of situations in football, there's a similar pressure exerted. There's some songs that are deemed to be beyond the bounds of decency. And uh, there's been efforts, whether reasonably unofficial or sometimes quite official to, to stop the, those songs being sung. And I, I think the shift of this uh, ethos into rugby was probably a bit of a surprise to lots of rugby fans and, and, and to wider society, which I think to some extent accounts for uh, the fact that it became such a thing. And especially as even players like Martin Afaya, who's uh, uh, kind of associated with the, the period when the song emerged, whenever it was in the late 80s, I think, you know, he came out and, and said he didn't want to see it banned. But it it seems that I, I suppose that the association with football is much more working class set of fans and, and the controls of football have always been synonymous with working class culture, whereas this does seem to uh, represent a, a shift now uh, in, in, in the way that lots of uh, the pressure in society to curtail things is not just directed at working class people, but all sorts of sections of, of, of society. And I wanted to come to Jeff uh, next with a question on cricket, because a lot of these uh, political disputes in sport just now seem to be happening at a time when the public sphere has become disaggregated really we we all relate to each other on nothing but social media anymore or in isolated cells in a zoom conversation um whereas it seems one of the ways that uh we might get back together again in some reasonable way would be at a grassroots level of sport of of actually taking part in in, in things perhaps cricket would be a good example and yet cricket has managed to be a eradicated from the round of things allowed to open up in the recent uh, announcements. Where, where do you stand on that, Jeff? It's quite extraordinary. I have to say, some rugby fans might be annoyed, or very annoyed, but I don't got anything on the, the anger of the cricket fans and the, how cricket's gone from being, in a couple of generations, the national sport, and, 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 and certainly in the mindset, the values of cricket were seen as the values of the country and the way that you taught people the British way of life or certain civilised values and whatever from, uh, we've seen that in England, you look at the writings of C.L.R. James, there's all these things. Cricket is seen in a certain way and has a certain self-image. And then now Boris Johnson comes out and says, well, the cricket ball is a vector of disease and it's just seen, and cricket suddenly become toxic. So from, it's a, you can see why People are in despair. People are angry and in despair, and the whole thing is ludicrous because all they're wanting to do is play on this sport where people stand all over the different parts of the field outside and bowl a ball at somebody who hits it with a bat. And yes, there's an issue that people, you know, shine the ball in various ways, which you know could contain saliva, but that doesn't have to necessarily. So the whole way that because the scientists have, have determined, and obviously they're not cricket fans, but they've determined this thing in relation to the sport. Uh, uh, and, and basically, what the end result of it is cricket is now toxic. And the prime minister who's saying, well, I'd really like to let you play village cricket and do all these things, but I can't, which is obviously ludicrous because he could just say, you can go and play village cricket, but you have to have certain regulations. Yes, there's a test match next week, everybody doing that between England and the West Indies is in a bubble. 
But I think the whole perception of cricket from this great sport, which is of great value and brought pleasure to millions of people, to suddenly becoming toxic is, a, is quite an extraordinary uh, and, and, and ridiculous development. I'm, I, I feel quite angry about it uh, myself as a l- l- lifelong cricket fan. Okay, well, let me bring us to a close then by just asking you all a question about uh, anything that you're looking forward to seeing in that spirit that Jeff's mentioning you know, of a frustration about things being closed. What's coming up that's uh, open and uh, good for us to keep an eye out for? I'll obviously be looking forward to uh, wearing my scarlet ribbon in the merry month of July for uh, FA Cup uh, semi-finals. The other thing that, that I'm really looking forward to is the, the Tour de France, which should be uh, should have started this weekend, obviously, but has been uh, postponed to, to the end of August. In particular, uh, Team Ineos, the, the old Team Sky, it's going to be really interesting. So they have now three tour winners uh, in one team, uh, in Froome, Geraint Thomas, uh, Egan Bernal. Uh, how do you organise a team that, you know, obviously the, 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 the rationale of a team in the Tour de France is they support uh, the person that they're expecting to win. How do you organise that when you've got three potential winners uh, on your team? That's going to be really, really interesting in a, a practical way. Uh, so I'm massively uh, looking forward to that. Rob, what are you looking forward to? Well, um, obviously, apart from the crowd stuff that we were talking about earlier and just the normalisation of it again, uh, I'm also looking forward to boxing in front of crowds. Um, I know the UFC has been doing some sort of fights behind closed doors, but that's really, I mean, if anything needs a crowd, it's its boxing. I mean, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that we finally get to see Tyson and Joshua in the ring before the year is out. That would be, be great. It'd be a really big uh, occasion for, for British boxing. Uh, and I think a really, really interesting clash of styles uh, and uh, t- t- you know, fighters and you know, ages and all that sort of characters that go into that. I think that that, that would be great fun. Um, so I hope we see that in a massive venue with lots of people uh, before the year is out. Philip, anything on your horizon? Um, I'm kind of quite looking forward to watching the relegation run in because we we looks like we've clambered out of it and just you know. Uh, watching Bournemouth and West Ham and uh, Watford struggling is delightful. Um, you know, uh, I yeah, I, it, it's a bit of fun what, watching other people suffer. I would hate to be in that position. I've been in that position many a time, and it's just nice to be able to sit back and watch. Um, you can't watch the fans crying this year, which is the only sad bit. But you know, you can watch the players and the, the managers looking bewildered in the dugout so I think you know the title's been wrapped up this is the next the next best thing which is watching watching the relegation dogfight um I'm, I am also looking forward to being able to go to a pub and have a drink and hopefully pubs will, will be entrepreneurial enough to have the football on um, I don't know if they'll be allowed to but you know I, why not and that will be a step towards normality you know normality will be when we're able to Go to go to football matches again, and, and and support our teams. But you know, from next weekend, pubs will be open. Uh, I know that's not absolutely to do with sport, but it you know that's a good place to watch sport if you're not able to do it in the stadium. 
Yeah, that's exactly what my sentiments were as well, actually, that pubs will be on the fly uh, having showing matches and everybody will just ignore all the rules of pubs and gather at the bar to buy drinks and watch the match and everybody starts to get on with it. Jeff, your uh, your thoughts on what you're looking forward to? Well, also, Adam, what's the thing about the Tour de France is they're talking about bringing it back still with fans and that they wouldn't do it without. So hopefully that will happen and that would be something, I mean, something with proper crowds and, uh, and all the rest of it. I have to say, during this period, you go back to what sports uh, mean, to, mean most to you over your life and over the last few months, and it is football and cricket. So I think coming up, England-West Indies cricket, the England team aren't what they might have been once, although they're not bad. And the West Indies certainly aren't what they were in the 70s and 80s when they had the top fast bowlers but you know that they're, they're not they're not that bad so hopefully a decent test series even if it is without fans in a, a hermetically sealed bubble that it's something to look forward to in the next six weeks You've been listening to Jeff Kidder, Rob Lyons, Hilary Salt and Julie Palaraja pick over the recent developments in the world of sport and sporting politics. As I said at the start of this podcast, we at Academy of Ideas have been as busy as ever right the way through the lockdown period, organising or coordinating events online. It means that we have declined to furlough any of our staff with obvious financial implications. So if you are still working and can afford to make a contribution, either large or small, please do support us by making a donation. To do that, visit our website at academyofideas.org.uk and hit the donate button. And while you're there, do be sure to catch up with the video and audio from every one of our online debates, as well as a huge range of freely available material and debates from our Battle of Ideas Festival. We'll be back soon, and to make sure that you don't miss us, then please do subscribe to Podcast of Ideas on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app.